Welcome to HEAL. On today's episode, Dr. Denise Bassart, PhD and author of Thriving After Sexual Abuse, shares her stunning and impactful journey to thriving after childhood of repeated incidences of sexual abuse by her grandfather. Her story is an inspiration for all of us walking the path to wholeness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Oh my gosh, welcome to Heal. Thank you so much for being here. We've got Denise Bossart, who actually found Heal and came to me and shared her story. And I'm thrilled, 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 thrilled to have you here today, as much as we can be thrilled about a pretty rough topic. It's not so much that as who you are and what you've done and your courage and your boldness to willingness to share your story, because I know you already are and will continue to make a difference for a lot of people having been a survivor of child abuse and child sexual abuse in particular, which is like one of the things here at HEAL is the willingness to talk about stuff we don't often talk about. And Mm -hmm. I definitely think this subject falls into that category. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your courage and your heart and your boldness to be here with us today. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here and have a conversation with you. Good. Awesome. So where do we begin? Do you want to dive into sharing your story and we can just kind of let the conversation open up from there? Sure. I think that's a good place to start. So I was sexually abused by my maternal grandfather, my mother's father. And this would happen over the summers when all the grandkids would get together down at their lake. They had retired on a a lake house and we would be doing fishing and boating and swimming and skiing and all kinds of fun, cool stuff. But unfortunately, along with that, there was the abuse. There was a workshop in the basement and that's where the abuse happened. And my grandfather went after certain personalities in the girls in our family. So I wasn't the only one. I I found out later an older cousin and some other folks in my family were abused by this same person. But it was something that happened when I was pretty young. I have a trauma survivor's brain in that I can't remember everything that happened to me. There's some pretty strong, um, very distinct memories that I have, but I don't remember a whole lot. In particular, I can't put the trauma experiences in the timeline of my normal life that was happening as a child. And so I know it happened when I was pretty young because I remember certain things that did happen and how tall I was relative to the adults in my world. Mm. I must've been at early elementary school. And this continued until I was a freshman in high school when he died, he died of cancer. So it was a pretty long time that that was going on. And I didn't consciously understand what was happening to me. I was so young when it started and it was something that my brain wasn't prepared to process. And I think my brain also tried to protect me by helping me not be aware of what was going on. But I knew this person was not, hey, grandpa, love me, kiss me, hug me, you know, spend time with me. It was not that reaction to him at all. I was terrified of him, terrified to be alone with him, terrified to sit next to him at a family dinner. There was just something, the vibe was there, the intuition was there that he was not a safe person and try to stay away from him. But unfortunately, I couldn't make that happen all the time. And so that sort of went until, again, he died when I was a freshman in high school. And at that point in time, I guess my brain decided, hey, he's gone, it's safe, and kablow, here came memories and body memories and flashbacks. And it was just like, you know, Pandora's box was open. And I was just like, holy cow. In high school? In high school. Oh my gosh. Because there's not enough going on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hormonally yeah. and everything else. What else yeah. is going on at that time? Everything's going on at that time. And it was just absolutely overwhelming. At first I thought I, thought I was crazy, but it just made so much sense that I looked back at how afraid I was of him and it just made sense. And yeah. actually while I was going through it, my brain was sort of releasing some of that intensity and energy by having this recurring nightmare that a monster was trying to get me Mm. and so I kind of pieced together okay I'm not really insane I'm not going crazy this is real stuff look how I felt around him look at this dream but I was just so ashamed so ashamed of what had happened I bought totally into that idea it was my fault I should have stopped it I should have not let it happen he didn't tell me a lot of those messages but he certainly made me feel that way he made me feel 
full of shame and worthless and unlovable and pretty much made me feel like I deserved what he was doing to me. And so I just was like, okay, I can't tell anybody about this. This is just too much to share, even with my family. I was, I was afraid of being rejected, of not being believed, you know, all those things that survivors go through. Yeah. So instead, what I did was another form of self-therapy was to dive into school. Mm -hmm. I always was a good student. I loved school, got a lot of positive feedback from the teachers. And so that's what I did. I did went into scholastics and into band and basketball. And I just kept so busy. I had no moment to remember or to think about what was happening. So obviously, I'm not a very healthy solution to the problem, but it was the only thing I could come up with, you know, yeah. myself. And that went on through high school. And I was from the outside, I looked very functional from the outside. Our family looked normal and I looked totally functional. I was getting straight A's. I was the drum major. I was a captain of the basketball team. I was checking all the boxes and there's no way that anyone would know that I was dying inside. And I was so ashamed and felt so bad about myself. And then I went to college and I started dating a graduate student who was a recovering alcoholic who went to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And he was the first person I told a lot about. Other boyfriends, I had mentioned a few things, but I really opened up to him and he was the first person to help me find a therapist. Yeah. So through the counseling center at, at the school, took a couple tries to find the right match for me, but we, we did find one and it was fantastic because then he got me in a group that was women who were survivors of assault and abuse. And for the first time, I was really talking to women who had gone through something like me, who could tell me what it felt like and mirror back to me my experiences and really validate my experiences. And they were on different parts of their healing journey and I could see people who were moving towards healing. And it was really inspiring to have a group like that to connect with. And based on his experience with Alcoholics Anonymous, he got me into a Survivors of Incest Anonymous program or group that was similar, 12-step program. And it was a mixed group in that there were men and women. So for the first time, I actually saw men who had been abused. And one gentleman was the age of my grandfather when he was abusing me, and he had been abused by his mother, and it was devastating for him. And it was just unbelievable that I could get in my head wrapped around the idea that there were people who were like my grandfather, but really weren't like my grandfather, right? There were the, these people out there who were suffering. And so that really kicked off my healing journey. Yeah to be, and I was doing all of this at kind of the same time. It's like, you know, type A, Denise, if you're going to jump in, you go the, <laughs> deep yeah. into the pool and you Completely. dive in, <laughs> but it was good. It was really good. And, and I did that throughout college, but that wasn't quite enough for me. I mean, there was just took me so far in my right. healing journey. And then I, at that point I had gotten together with my husband and we were living in Florida and, and we were thinking about having a family and so I did my research and I found, oh, when you're pregnant, it's great to do yoga. So type eight and he said, let's find a yoga studio before we get pregnant. You know, not even thinking anything about how it could be healing for me and my mm. background and my past, but just kind of forward thinking. So I went around to different studios until I found one that felt right to me. And the beginning class was done by a man. And I said, well, let me give it a try. And it was hard because there were poses that just made me feel so vulnerable yeah. and exposed. And I kind of knew what that was about. And I just said, well, I need to talk to my teacher because this was a style of yoga where they do a lot of adjustments with hands-on adjustment, very mm -hmm. healthy, normal way of doing yoga, right? right? The Iyengar method. And so I, I sat down and talked with him. And not surprising based on the statistics that we know, his sister had been abused. And so he was really understanding. He says, okay, I'll give you alternatives. You don't have to do the poses that make you uncomfortable. You know, I'll give you alternatives. You won't stand out in class. I'll just not adjust you. And again, I won't do it in a way that makes it obvious. You know, you're not going to stand out in class. You don't have to be afraid of that. And we worked together for a number of years and I learned to get through some of that fear of some of the poses. But what happened was so transformative because I had always hated my body. 
because I felt it betrayed me. You know, I yeah. felt that it betrayed me and it was responding to my grandfather's interaction with me because that's what your body's built to do, right? It's, it's built to respond and contrasting that with what was happening, it was very confusing. And I learned to dissociate while the abuse was happening. That was my out for trying to survive it. And then I learned to hate my body. Like in high school, I just hated my body. I mistreated it. I would use it as a machine, like in basketball, push until you drop, all of that mistreatment and really wasn't understanding how to be in my body for many, many years. And yoga was the first time I was exposed to what is it like to be present in your body, to explore the different parts of your body, to be appreciative of the flexibility and strength and stamina that your body can have in a positive way, learning not to push too hard and be more gentle. And in doing that, it tapped into a lot of those stored memories, stored emotions that had been there for years and, you know, it kind of exploded. And my way of dealing with that was to write poetry. Mm. to express what was happening and the memories and the emotions. And I'd always been a writer. I wrote poetry as a kid, a little fun poems, you know, wrote stories for school, really enjoyed being expressive that way. But this was just a way for me to really get the emotions out and the feelings out. And slowly it was writing about my healing journey and how things were improving. And at the time, my husband said, you should share this. And I was like, okay, who's going to want to read a bunch of poems about abuse? You know? right? <laughs> Who wants to read that? And, and I'm also thinking, okay, I, have, I didn't understand it was a trauma brain at that time. All I knew is I did have a lot of memories and I couldn't put them in a timeline. I'm like, a memoir is not going to happen for me. I just can't do it. So I, I kind of put that aside, but kept doing the yoga. And I still have my yoga practice and it's a pivotal part of my healing journey and my continued self-care is to do yoga. So that was helping heal my body. And then I learned through yoga about meditation. And so I started practicing Buddhist meditation through a center in Atlanta when we moved there and learned how to turn my mind into an ally. So I hated my body, mistreated my body. Yoga helped me with that. But I had heard this horrible voice my whole life and it's probably my grandfather's voice telling me how bad I was and how unlovable I was and I had turned into a kind of perfectionist to counter that yeah but in a way that's self-destructive too because no one can ever be perfect so I can never measure up and then the perfectionist was beating me up if you know oh you got a 99 you didn't get a hundred that's horrible you know so hear these two voices just constantly pounding on me. And when I started working with meditation, I started to be able to recognize that those were voices that mm. I didn't have to pay attention to, that I could peel those away release those and really start to hear my own authentic voice again and actually find some peace and some settlement in my mind. And again, it turned my mind into an ally that I needed to be able to move away from the past and really focus my energy going forward. Yeah. What was the timeline for that? Like, I mean, at one level, we're always on the healing journey, right? Mm -hmm. Like that never yeah. ends. But when we look at where you were in college, when you found the, what's the acronym correctly? SIA. SIA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that group to be able to support you to this work with yoga and meditation. Like what was that timeline like for you? Sure. So the, the yoga came when I was a graduate student. So there was a period of time I went to college and had all of the therapy, group therapy, individual therapy. Then I was in grad school for about seven years where I reverted back to, I've got to just immerse myself in, in scholastics to get this degree. And then I switched and went to get a, a master's degree in a different field. And that's when, after a seven year period of time, I came back to working on healing and found yoga. And yeah. it was about 18 months, two years of yoga experience before we moved into Atlanta. And then I started the meditation experience and I did that for so, I think we were in, in Atlanta for five years. So I was still mm -hmm. doing the yoga at the time, but I had added the meditation for uh, about five years worth of time there. Awesome. And I ask because like, like, you know, I think generally we have an impression about healing 
well, not healing per se, but just sort of, we generally tend to come from a more instant gratification type place. <laughs> yes. And clearly, Heal me now. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, coming from whatever we're dealing with, like I'm a year deep into a new world of having chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. And this year is very different than how last year was. And I really like w- notice the parts of my brain that are like, I should be done. I want to be done. And I start to invalidate the things that are coming up for me. Like, well, is that really chronic fatigue or are you just mm-hmm. being tired or, you know, whatever there's, it, I've done a lot of work with the little voice in my head too. Yeah. So it's not as nasty as it was 12 years ago, but there still is that doubt that creeps in that question. So one of the things that I love to be able to create here on heal is for people to hear other stories that come from that place of like, just stay, stay on the path, mm-hmm. you know, keep putting one foot in front of the other and and that it's not just a matter of like, oh, well, that didn't work in three months, move on next, or I'm hopeless, or there's no help for me, or, you know, those places of despair that we can get, particularly when there's been trauma and mm-hmm. abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, or like, you know, those major experiences of mental, emotional challenges. I think then the disorder aspect of it itself, the part of us that's been wounded or injured is talking back to us sometimes in a way that makes it seem like we'll never get out of it. Yeah, and, and I certainly was one of those people that was perfectly miserable and wanted to, to go stop, you know, yeah. just make it stop. And I had had in high school in particular, suicide ideation and sort of thought about it, but there was something inside that just wouldn't go down that path completely. I just wanted to keep fighting because somehow there was something in me that says there's got to be something better than this. And even if I couldn't consciously articulate that to myself, I just kept going. And I think it it's hard for people because you do want to get out of the suffering. You want to heal. You want to move into the better part of your life. But it's not as if we can get on the Autobahn and drive 200 miles an hour to destination <laughs> healed. You know, it's yeah. like, I wish we could, but, and healing's not a straight path. It no. curves, it zigs, it zags. And uh, life keeps happening in the process. And <laughs> exactly. Keep, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> As you're going along, what's showing up is your life, right? Yeah. And I think you make a fantastic point that you have to give yourself a chance to have the experience with whatever looks like it might work for you or you want to explore because, you know, a few weeks is not enough for anything. You know, we know neurologically that 21 days you need to form a habit that it takes that amount of time. So you got to give yourself like a month at least to try something. And if you're taking time to keep a journal or making notes or something, it's fabulous because you can always go back to that and say, look where I was before. Yeah. Look where I am now. Even yeah. if it's a few baby steps, you're heading in a right direction. You can see movement and improvement. And then you can kind of give yourself a little juice to keep going with it. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm always a studier of neuroscience and then the, the mind body connection, which is such an outdated concept because we're now pretty clear it's, we're all one thing, Mm -hmm. but that place where our view of the world and how it shapes our memory and our recollection. And I'm currently reading this book. That's a hefty tome of a book. It's called thinking fast and slow by David Kahneman. And it's a lot of this research on neuroscience and how in psychology, they've done all these studies. It's just the book is one chapter after another, basically showing the degree to which our brains trip us up and we are not living in the reality that we think we are. Mm-hmm. But one of the ones that's just recently struck me was where they talk about hindsight bias, where when you shift your perception, you change your mind about something, you almost can't recall the way it was before. Mm-hmm. So an interesting phenomenon is as we heal, it would be easy to accidentally fall into the trap of, well, maybe it was never that big of a deal, or I don't really remember, or I haven't really made that much progress. That's a, that's actually a natural tendency, the way our brain adapts. Mm-hmm. So having that, like as a clinician, I take actual dictation with my clients. I don't interpret anything as they're t- talking to me. I just write down what they say, like verbatim. Mm-hmm. And what's really awesome about that is, you know, a year or two down the road, I can go back and literally give their words back to them of this is what you said in our first session. This is what you said in the second session. And there's usually a big aha moment of like, oh my God, I didn't even remember I was dealing with that. Or I can't remember Mm -hmm. that was there. So I think that's, that is a really powerful thing to be able to acknowledge ourselves and mark the journey and acknowledge that 
progress that has been made. Yeah, because it is such a hard thing to start. I mean, just starting your journey is so difficult because I think there's a lot of fear, fear of rejection. There's a lot of shame, a lot of self-blame. And also it's asking yourself to redefine who you are. You know, I'm this person full of shame and self-hatred, et cetera, et cetera. This is who I've been and how I've been for so long. And we're asking ourselves to step out of that and redefine who we are. And that's pretty darn scary to make that kind of shift and to let go of whatever it was that you identified with, even if it was pain and misery to self-identify in that way. It's what you knew. And we know that human beings are afraid of change, afraid of something new. And it's a big step. But I, I always try to encourage people that think about how strong you are are to have gotten through everything you've gotten through, the strength, and you may not even recognize it. And you should take the time to do that, to say, oh my gosh, there's something inside me that was so strong to get through it. Maybe I don't look back and say, I made it through and you know, with stellar flying colors in the most healthy way. Well, you did the best you could with what you knew at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that strength is still there. And you can use that strength to make the decision to say, I want to redefine myself. I'm going to shift from the person that I was told to be or shown to be, particularly at a young age when you're just so easily molded by your environment and the people in your environment. Well, now you can make those decisions and literally decide to shift. And that, that's what, for me, I was so miserable and my relationships were not good. And I just didn't enjoy my life. And I'd see people out there that seemed to be doing a lot better than me. And I thought, well, why can't I have that? And I started looking, what don't I like about how I am behaving, how I show up in the world, how I think about myself. And boy, I just started buying self-help books and reading and putting affirmation stickies on the mirror, you know, whatever I could do to start making that transition and just believing that it was possible. I didn't really know how it was gonna look, where it was gonna go, but I believed it was possible to shift. And that was the first step for me to being able to get out of the past, yeah. take that energy away from responding to what had happened in the past and put that energy into myself and my future. Brilliant. And you did find a way through to create an absolutely stunning, incredible book about this topic and sharing your own journey and the resources that you utilized along the way. And it's thriving after sexual abuse. And I mean, I'm not a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and I have a circumstance in college for about two years in a relationship that in some lights we could define as that being a sexually abusive relationship. And I watched myself go through my own experiences of, well, I was in college, so I was complicit. You know, I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and you know, and I've never been somebody who's had any interest or come from a mentality of like being a victim of something that, Mm -hmm. that framework, the way society defines it, not necessarily how that would show up in terms of therapy or psychology, but in society was like, I'm not a victim of anything. So then it just kind of became bad choices. Well, I was just a dumb college kid who made bad choices. The person that I dated and staying in a relationship that was unhealthy and tons of self criticism and, and we can go into more about that at a different time. But what I really love about the way you put your book together is like, it's literally like step-by-step resources Mm -hmm. that it's kind of inescapable to be able to find (laughs) something that's going to be a starting point, which I love, like, you know, and how in the beginning you look at one-on-one therapy and the, you know, absolute support that is there to have one person who's not a part of your life. They're not a family member. They're not a close friend. They're independent who you can actually begin to unpack some of these things to even step out that very scary step of that first part of saying it's possible for me to redefine who I am for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you got it exactly. That's what this book really was about because again, I couldn't put together a memoir and I had written all that poetry many, many years ago with the yoga. My husband encouraged me to share it. And I was like, yeah, you know, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. And, and then it kind of was there for a while sitting on my computer. And then just a few years ago, I learned about Dr. Larry Nessar and the views of all these gymnasts and just thinking about it, 
makes me teary-eyed. Uh, one man, hundreds of women impacted, and that cracked open my heart. And a light bulb went off. It was like, oh, well, wait a minute. I don't have a memoir in me. And no offense to people, but there's lots of memoirs out there, right? I thought, you know, what's not out there is something that talks about how someone healed. Usually you get the story of, of their abuse and then that, that's the end, you know? And I thought I could do that. I have all these different things I've tried. I could write a book and I could help people figure out what to do. And I said, I never had the blueprint, the workbook. There was nothing out there when I was going through it. And so I decided I'm gonna write the book I wish I had had. And I'm going to tell my story, but I'm going to tell them in a way that I'm going to share all these different things with people, guide them through how to journal about it. And it's not me saying, do this, do that. This is what works, you know, 30 day program, you're healed. It's more like, let's explore this together. I'll be your mentor on the page. We'll explore some of the things I've tried. And it's a jumping off point for you to explore that and maybe try some of this or might inspire you. But to me, every trauma story is unique and every healing journey will be unique but mine is an example of what you might try and hopefully an inspiration for where you can go with it and that was really the goal for writing the book well you nailed it I mean I I often have talked with my clients when they look at going to another practitioner and I say interview your practitioners ask them questions and they're like what questions would I even ask and we do that work together and I'm reading your book and I'm like, it's right here. She has literally <laughs> the bullet point questions of like for working with a therapist, for working in group therapy, for your exploration, like here's some of the questions to ask and places. And, and it's at least gives a great framework for that starting point for people where they don't mm -hmm. have to come up with it from ground zero. And when we have a brain that's dealt with trauma, it does all kinds of things like censor itself and not speak up not, you know, endure circumstances that wouldn't otherwise be a good fit just because we think we're supposed to trying to be the good little boy or the good little girl. Mm -hmm. So I love how empowering the chapters are to actually be able to put the tools in the hands of the person, you know, on that journey to say, okay, I have this guideline of questions to ask. And if they do nothing but paint by numbers, it'll get them, you know, really far along in that process. So that was just excellent. Yeah, and I, I did that because when you're trying to do this really tough stepping out for the first time, you kind of like, people will say, well, go Google it or go look it up. And you're like, well, where, what do I do? Where do I look? You know, and so I wanted people to have exactly like you said, the questions to ask and the resources. I, at the end of the book, I give all these resources for groups you can connect with, websites to visit, you know, apps for meditation and anything that I could kind of throw together in my healing journey, I wanted to make sure that those were available for folks to have a, a jumping off point. And this book was written for men and women. It was written for people of all ages. It was written if you're just starting your healing journey and want to find that therapist, that's chapter one. But if you've already started and you've already incorporated some of these things, you can jump into later chapters and find other things that are just going to enhance your healing journey. Because I really see it as an opportunity to form a toolkit for yourself, a self-care approach that I think people need more than one thing. I think a therapist is absolutely critical. That's a starting point, but there's other things that we really need to do, especially to teach ourselves to have self-care. I talk about pampering yourself and being in nature or being doing physical exercise, whatever is of interest to people and really brings them joy, right? But I think people need to understand that one path, one healing, modality isn't the end-all be-all and it may be that you feel like well I'm getting a little bit but I still need some more and that's perfectly okay that you need some more and there's things that you can try that you can make part of what helps you get through and expand I mean that's that's how human beings are we're curious we're creative we're inquisitive we want to explore and learn new things and I think that that's natural for human beings, but we can kind of take that natural tendency and really apply it to our own healing because we can look more focused on things that could be healing to us and nurturing to us and not just sort of fun things to learn. And all of these practices underneath it all, people may not realize this, but you're rewiring your brain. You're totally rewiring your brain from the victim brain, eventually a survivor brain. And what I like to call a thriver, 
as the title of my book, you're moving into a thriver space where you're focusing on your resilience and the things that enrich your life and you're not referencing your identity back to the past. You are your own person and moving forward with what you want to do in your life. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I, in my work, I look at how we are this like four quadrant human being. Now, of course, it's all very holistic and holographic, but we've got our physical body, our mind, our emotions, and then our soul, spirit, energetic self, however you want to say that. And what I find in my own life and in a lot of the lives of my clients is there's quadrants we're very comfortable in, and there's (laughs) quadrants we don't spend much time in. And so (laughs) I'm very comfortable in mind And I'm very comfortable in emotions and I'm very comfortable in spirit. And what's interesting is even though I'm literally a naturopathic doctor and a lot of what I do is about biochemistry and detoxification, my weakest quadrant is around the area of the physical body for like exercise, yoga, martial arts, any sort of like literal physical practice is my weakest point. And that's the place I'm now pulling myself into on purpose Mm-hmm. as I've gone deeper and deeper in my own healing journey. And so that's another place for people to look at in the beginning, start in your easy quadrant, start in the mm-hmm. area that is comfortable for you. That is already familiar. You have strength there and build on that. But if you're along the way and you've done, you know, tons of therapy and you have a PhD in neurology and you, <laughs> you know, there's areas we get really comfortable in and then to look, to see, is it the spiritual realm that we haven't explored? And I would put creativity in the same world as the spiritual. Mm. So it doesn't have to be about a religion or spiritual practice, but I think creation is in that. And so anything that's going to get us in touch with art, creativity, you talked about contemplative art, which I Mm -hmm. loved that from the book. Talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about what contemplative art is. Sure. I I think people are pretty familiar with meditation and the concept of meditation. So in meditation, what you're really doing is you're working with your mind, but generally what you're trying to do is work with your thoughts as they arise and it's more sort of internal facing. So when you're working with contemplation, it's it's like a sister practice to meditation, but we're turning outward in the sense that now we're working with something external to us. We're, and contemplative arts is about creating things. So it's about the process of creating things and it's how your mind is engaging while you're present and active in this creative process. The end product is not so important, but, but for me, I, I love the contemplative arts. There's a lot of them come out of the Eastern philosophies and traditions. So there's a cabana flower arranging and calligraphy and tea ceremony and, and haiku poetry and that sort of thing. The, the contemplative arts that I focus on are photography and being able to work with your camera as just as a simple tool to try to get you directly connected with what you're seeing so mm-hmm. that you're dropping all the stories and agendas and expectations that you have about the experience that you're going to have in the world when you go out with your camera and really focus on seeing and having that direct connection. And the camera is just a convenient tool to snap and, and take uh, a captured image of that experience. And expressive arts all are not the focus on the tool, but the process that you go through and how your mind is while you're in the practice, being present and quiet mind and focused mind. And it's really a great way to slow down and learn to be present and not be so monkey mind, scattered mind. And sometimes people have a hard time with meditation, even if it's a walking meditation. And this is, a, like I said, a sister practice where people can tap into their creativity and be either through body movement or some kind of visual arts, even literary arts can be done, writing can be done in a contemplative way where you're just present with what you're experiencing. And that is very, very powerful for people because as survivors of trauma, we don't want to be where we are because where yeah. we are sucks. <laughs> you know, our mental games are going on, the physicality of what we've experienced and being able to learn how to be present as the emotions come and go and as things arise and disappear and learning to appreciate that all those scenes have a transiency to them that if you maintain your presence and just stay with who, who you are, where you are at that moment, then you can ride through that but it takes practice to build that stability of mind and 
meditation or contemplative arts are a great way to start to build that resiliency and that strength of, of mentality to be able to deal with things as they arise without them totally flattening you or shaking the boat. And for me, it's just a way to be creative and a way to be expressive and really connect with the beauty of the world and my ability to create beauty, which is an extension of me being beautiful, right? You know, it, it's all the restructuring of the story right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just being able to appreciate beauty, it was really hard because my life was not filled with beauty in any way, shape or form internally, externally, I couldn't even see or connect with beauty. If I saw it, I was just envious of it because it seems so far away from being able to be part of my life. And with the contemplative arts practices, I learned to actually connect with that beauty, appreciate it, internalize it, and be able to say, okay, this can be part of my world. I can actually do things to bring this into my world and experience it for myself. And then really that started to get to open things up for me in a way that meditation by itself never really did. Yeah. And that's what I love about how you wrote the book, but I also underscore it for anybody's healing journey is, is that we want to actually traffic in these different modalities to get a more complete healing process. I mean, we get to each choose our path, but you know, the places where in my work, you know, a great nutritious diet and detoxification will only get us so far. And then there has to be these other realms. And I'll have somebody who will begin Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga practice, or they decide to like take up tennis, or they were had a childhood sport that they loved that they got back into an adult league and they just started interacting with their physical body in a new way. It's one of the books you brought up. I think it was, I've read it and I'm now remembering the title, which is the body keeps the score, mm-hmm. the body keeps score. And that whole concept of like, it's, these mental, emotional, and traumatic experiences and physical, and and this is where it gets like in my work, I see that the physical body and the mental, emotional body really are just mirror images of each other. And you, you can work the problem, quote unquote, from both sides. Mm -hmm. And if you spend a lot of time dwelling in the physical around nutrition and biochemistry, you know, there will be things that shift in somebody's emotional space and in their mental space and their thinking as they clean up their liver, they clean up other things in their psyche that happen at the same time. Or if you don't have access to that so much in your physical body, you can do it from the other direction. But as we work our way around these different angles, bringing in exploring creativity and whatever, and that's a whole world that I think a lot of people had some sort of a break in belonging when they're a kid someone told them that they weren't good at it or their piece of art didn't look real, quote unquote. And I know a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people that as adults will say, I'm not creative. I can't do art. I can't draw. There's a lot of shame in that area Mm -hmm. for all of us that I think locks us out of a part of life and a part of self-expression. And so whatever that outlet may be, whatever form of creativity, there's healing that happens in that process for all of us. Yeah, I think you're right. There's art trauma for everybody. You know, that at some point somebody tells you you're not an artist, you know, and for me, no one actually told me. I just had a a really good friend who was amazing. I'm like, I can look. I can just look at his stuff, look (laughs) at my stuff. I'm like, okay, cartoon stick figures versus, oh my gosh, you know, master art. And although I enjoyed drawing and et cetera at that time, people have such a narrow definition when you're little about what an artist is. It's that person who, like you said, can make things look real. And if that's it, then not very many people have that skill or at that point in time. But for me, when I talk about creativity and creative arts, you know, obviously I'm, I mentioned photography and visual arts, you know, painting, drawing, et cetera. But I expand that to be anything that you do that's creative, woodworking, sewing, crocheting, baking, crafting. Yeah, yeah, all gardening. of that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Exactly. Anything where you're creating and, and getting your hands in there and, and working on things. And it doesn't have to be anything that you're going to show anybody. That's the other part. You know, there's always this judgment that other people are going to, you know, critique it and it's not good enough to other people. The heck with that. 
you know, it's, if it's good enough to me and it brings me joy, I don't care what the end product is like, whether I share it or not. It's the process again of doing what you love to do. What, you know, cooking a fabulous meal and, you know, it's beautifully displayed. That is art. And I think people need to be open to saying that I'm creative, you know, that I have creativity in me, even if they can't say I'm creative, that they should explore that and appreciate that that's just something that is a, a part of them that they don't need other people to recognize in the same way that they can recognize it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that just stands out big time in your book is, you know, through this process, there's a shift from focusing on what happened, which is an important part of the healing process to a certain extent, but you even made the point, which I've heard from other experts that you don't have to necessarily rehash or relive or re-experience. We, we now have hundreds of options around trauma work that therapists are trained in. And there's actually quite a lot that's opened up where we've recognized trauma therapy, quote unquote, doesn't actually have to even be about like re-experiencing or reliving anything from the original trauma. There's so many other ways we can access healing process. And one of the things I love to see was where there was this like threshold point in your book, shifting to joy. Mm-hmm. where it becomes about the joy in your life and what do you love to do and what brings you joy in life and starting to tip the scales towards that space. You know, another big challenging benchmark, another very like can be scary, frightening moment when we've spent so much of our life identifying a particular way to cross that threshold into I'm going to choose joy. My mom has a, um, magnet on her refrigerator that says I choose happiness because it's good for my health (laughs) and and like I just get that space of where many of us actually it takes courage and it takes a little like pushing through the momentum and getting the inertia going to step into that I'm gonna not be in the status quo of every day I'm not gonna just stay in the same space that's whatever rattles around between my ears and whatever that usual process is And I'm going to actively do something that will bring me joy. And there's so many things for me that the, once I get past whatever breaking that surface tension, it does bring me joy. And I still have to get past that surface tension where it's like, from where I am right now in this moment in life, I'm like, well, I could just keep checking my emails. I could just keep working. I could just keep doing this thing. And it like actually takes something for me to be like, stop dog on leash, walk outside, go to the park, (laughs) go to the lake, like whatever, even though once I've done it, once I'm there, I'm so connected to nature and I love the experience of it. And my mind feels good and my body feels good. But there's that like moment that I think to recognize that most of us have to actually put a little effort in, in order to make that first step go or second step go to move towards it. Yeah. And I think as trauma survivors, we're afraid of joy because I know for me, it felt like bad, bad, bad. Oh, here comes some joy, smack. You're, you know, you're beat down and something bad immediately happens. Almost in response, it felt like to the joy that came into your life. So it's like you are afraid of joy because one, you don't feel like you deserve it. And two, when it shows up, you're like, okay, what's coming next then? Because it just feels like every time something good comes along, it's either snatched away or something bad tromps along right after it. And I never let myself take a moment to absorb it because I was like, okay, let me get braced for the next bad thing that's coming, the next bad experience. And so joy would come and go, you know, good experiences, recognition, whatever it was. I would never absorb that or never appreciate it and never recognize it. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could never take compliments. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 you know, let's move on, (laughs) you know? And for me to be able to say, okay, this is going to be a part of your life. You want this to be a part of your life. You got to be able to accept it. You got to be able to take it in. And a lot of the books that I've been reading recently on resilience, like Rick Hansen has some wonderful work that he does about absorbing the good, taking the good in, marinating yourself in the good. Because again, we're trying to rewire our brains. We want our brains to really catch on to that good stuff and appreciate it. So the next time around when something has good is showing up, Ooh, you gravitate to it, you move towards it and you accept it. And in fact, you train your brain to see more joy and, and gratitude in your life. It's something that we have to train our brain to do because it was trained the other way. You know, how many years were you sitting and marinating in self-blame, self 
doubt, fear, et cetera, wiring your brain in that way. And now you're trying to step into something new and it's going to be a little scary and it's going to be hard to try, but it takes that time to do it. But having the, the gumption to say, you know what, joy's out there. I'm going to find it and I'm going to make it part of my life. And I may have to literally write down a, a list of what I need to do that I find joyful that I'm going to keep committing myself to, even if it takes that so that you can bring it into your life. Like you said, it's the next big shift to be able yeah. to appreciate that. And it's, it's really hard for trauma survivors to think that they could actually have that in your life. Cause sometimes there's the blinders are so strong. You don't even believe it's possible. You're in this suffocating little tiny room of pain. And it is so hard to imagine there's anything beyond that to see beyond that tiny cramped space that if we can get, just crack it in a little bit, open a tiny window and let that air and sunlight come in, then we keep working on that and we can start to crawl out of that room or get out of that space. But it takes, like you said, effort to yeah. move and shift in that direction. Yeah, yeah, there's an absolute, like things that make a difference in my life and that I work with my clients around. I mean, I'm not a therapist, but we have components of this process that comes up for people is to A, make that list. To literally like in a moment when you're not in the depths of it, because when I'm in my most depressed or when I'm in my most emotional, it does not occur to me like, oh, I could totally go take a walk right now. And that would be a <laughs> wonderful thing to do. It's like, no. And so having that list like plastered on your mirror or put into an office or under the you know refrigerator door makes a huge difference. And I like to make it where it's big things that like accomplishments, things you want to do and experience. But then also like, I actually often will have my clients do a list of 30 things that bring them joy that they can do like today. They're just mm -hmm. like little things that are always available to them on a daily basis. And you know, that it's the, those structures to be there. And then even accountability partners or buddies that'll do it with you. Cause you're much more likely to go do it when I have someone, I told them I was going to go with them. Mm -hmm. And when I'm mm -hmm. on my own, all of those things start to make a difference in it. It's awesome. And I love what you brought up about resilience. And I actually, am going to pull up the definition that you wrote here or, or a quote about resilience. Resilience is a well of inner resources that allows you to weather the difficulties and challenges you encounter without unnecessary mental, emotional, or physical distress. And building that resiliency, it's almost like we have, I, I've been known to say a savings account of health hmm. or resiliency, or however we, you know, physical health, mental health, emotional health. And when we're sick or have an illness, or we've dealt with something like trauma in our life, it's, we're running on a deficit. Mm -hmm. And to actually do the work to keep adding things into our life to build that bank account back up until we have a literal health savings account that we can draw on in those times of need, you know, or just through daily life to have that resiliency. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard when you're surviving in survivor mode, because all your energy is put into dealing with the past and the, the negativity and the shame. It's like you're, you're trying to hold a dam up against all of that stuff. And it is so draining that you, you might not have the energy to do something else. And it's hard to imagine letting that go, that it won't overwhelm you. It's like, if I, if I step away, all of that is just going to come crashing down on me. But the thing is that you, you'll ride the wave and come out of that and I just, I didn't have any idea how not to feel exhausted and pushing 110% and just trying to be the best I could because somehow, like I said, it, I, I came up with this perfectionist aspect that I had to be perfect. But underneath that, I think was if I could somehow just be perfect, I would be lovable. That the pain would stop, that the abuse would stop that it would, it would fix everything if I could just figure out how not to be the bad kid, the kid that deserves this. And so I just kept trying, you know, and kept trying. I mean, the, the end result was I got really good grades and I was very successful, you know, from the outside, Chuck checked all the boxes. Oh, look at Denise, everyone thinks that she's doing fine and, and I'm falling apart inside, yeah. you know, but it, it, it was, and I didn't start really learning about resiliency until the last couple of years and ironically around COVID and all that happening. And so learning about resilience was really helpful <laughs> during COVID because that was kind of a whammy for me to realize, oh my gosh, the world, I, I was taught a worldview when I was little 
through what my grandfather did. The world's a scary place. People can hurt you. People who love you can hurt you. That was the foundational worldview in my DNA that I had. And I had to unravel that and rewrite that for myself. And I was feeling pretty good about all the work I had been doing. And here came COVID and all of a sudden it's like, holy crap. Yep. The world's a scary place and people can hurt you with this pandemic. And so that was so triggering. And Mm -hmm. so it was shocking to me how triggering that was. And my husband has several high risk. And so it threw me in a tailspin, but it made me realize here's an opportunity for you to learn more. Here's, here's a step up for you. It's like, okay, what can you learn about trauma? You, you, you realize now that you're, you can define what happened to you as a trauma experience. Okay, let's learn more about that. And I started finding out about resilience. So even me, who's been doing all this work, I'm still learning. I'm still getting more things to add to my toolkit all the time as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, Denise, this has just been so awesome. And thank you so much for the work you've done and being willing to speak out and to share. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal for each each person that gets to listen to this or share this episode with others. And, you know, having the book is a toolkit for people and We are in a different conversation now, as you know, you had mentioned in the book, there weren't classes that teachers were taking to recognize the signs of childhood abuse in their students. There wasn't, you know, when I was a downhill ski race coach at Snowbird, we took 15 hour training that was called safe sport that was actually built into the United States ski team association that all coaches had to take to recognize signs of abuse in athletes. Cause that's really common that coaches are a place that is a very safe relationship and that students and children will come to their coaches and share about things that had happened in their life and, and how to recognize that. And so like we have a lot more awareness now and still need this and it's just it's such a huge contribution so thank you thank you thank you thank you well thank you for letting me know that it's always good to know that my intention is actually coming through and and again it was all about trying to help other survivors find their way to be a thriver yeah awesome Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much. We'll have all your information in the show notes of today's episode and how to get the book. And there's, I mean, really like survivor of childhood abuse or not, this book is a wealth of knowledge and resources for any healing journey. I, there were many in there that were ones that I had trafficked in books that I had read as well. And you mentioned Brene Brown's work. And I mean, there's just, it's really, really a powerful resource for lots of people who are just in that exploration of their own healing process. So thank you for doing it. And thanks for being here on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Interested in supporting the production of Heal Directly? We are looking for people interested in joining our team to expand our reach and build the Heal Academy platform. If you have expertise in online marketing, platform software, or podcast audience expansion, contact us directly on my website. Thank you to today's guest, Denise Bassart, for your vulnerability and generosity. For a full transcript of all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. See you next time.